0: Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome. CC. Hello and welcome. One, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling.
1: I don't think I ever really had a genuine ambition to swing people from one set of beliefs to the other. I mean, I You know, I have my own beliefs. And if someone showed me a film (laughs) that was very far from my own worldview, I'm not sure, you know, how open I would be to that.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 30, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at the documentary life.com academy. If this is the first time you've listened to TDL, you've come to the show at a pretty appropriate time, not only for your own doc life, but for the show itself. And if you're a regular listener to the show, who I like to call it a doc lifer, well, then you already know why this particular show, it's a special one. You see, episode 30 marks a very important evolution in what is quickly becoming the story of the documentary life, for it is this very episode in which we officially join the ranks of the weekly podcast. Yep, from this point forth, a brand spanking new episode of TDL, well, it's going to be made available to you on a weekly basis. Now, many of you are well acquainted with the original format of the show, and if you're new to the program, I'd encourage you to go back to the archive, which can be found at www.thedocumentarylife.com, and listen to any, if not all, of the 29 past episodes. The show was bi-weekly, and the format alternated between a show entirely hosted by myself, followed by the second show of the month, which was a shared conversation between me and a fellow Doc Industry guest. Some past topics have included five ways to finish your documentary film, filming documentaries overseas, and how to best run your Kickstarter campaign. Past guests have included the likes of film fundraising guru and author Maury Warshawski, desktopdocumentaries.com founder and curator Faith Fuller, internationally recognized professional storyteller Joel Ben Izzy, and award-winning filmmakers from all over the globe like New Zealander Costa Boats, British docmaker Richard Wiley, Americans Lydia B. Smith and John Perosi. These are just a handful of the fantastic topics and doc industry guests that we've had here and that have helped shape what the documentary life was, is, and will be. And while the show certainly cannot really exist without the aforementioned content or guests, there's one thing that has shaped this show, not to mention has encouraged us to move to a weekly format more than anything else, and that, my fellow doc lifers, that is you. To illustrate this point, let's take a quick humble look back where and how this show started and how far it has come along. It was 29 episodes in just over a year ago that The Documentary Life made its debut. Hello, 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 and welcome to the very first episode of The Documentary Life, a podcast with a cheap handheld mic, a very basic mixer, a Zoom recorder, and a stern bit too calculated voice that no doubt harkened back to my early days in radio i assembled the very first episode of tdl after that i released four episodes of the show in a two-week period before settling into the bi-weekly format early on in the show i was so excited to be talking with other filmmakers who i looked up to and or had similar filmmaking experiences with like john Perosi, a doc filmmaker who like myself had spent much time doing doc work in the country of cambodia or someone like Lydia B. Smith, who against all odds found a way to make a living off of her first documentary film, Walking the Camino, by essentially building a grassroots campaign that allowed her to gain a dedicated and loyal following of people that not only helped financially support the film, but would come out in droves to watch as she toured with the film all over the United States. If that early inspiration and education weren't enough, Something magical happened fairly early on when I started receiving emails from people who were shockingly listening to the show. These emails were often filled with thank yous for the show and encouragement to do more. They sometimes even contained personal stories, which detailed some of their own challenges and triumphs with documentary filmmaking. These stories both inspired and elevated me to not only continue doing the show, but also to keep doing better and bigger things with my own documentary life. And when I shared a few of these emails on the show, those stories then inspired and encouraged others to keep doing the same. So although it wasn't a regular thing on the show, I tried to share emails as much as I could. So people who were not only listening to the show, but they were encouraged and inspired by it. And even better, they were starting to share their own experiences with others, thereby planting the networking seeds of a group of like-minded individuals, all of us with one common passion, documentary film. Now, early on, I made a conscious decision not to focus on numbers, right? namely subscribers and downloads. Most everything I'd read or heard about podcasts say that the most damaging thing one could do to their podcasting morale, if you will, was to focus on these numbers, in particular early on in the game. So I put my energies into just putting out the kind of content that I thought would not only be interesting and fun to create but would be valuable content that other documentary filmmakers, or doc lifers as I started referring to them as, could use in their documentary films and their documentary lives for that matter. But I'd be lying if I wasn't sneaking peeks here and there just to see if more than the few people who had written emails were actually listening. So just for the sake of fun, I'll share with you some of those numbers. In the first two full months of TDL's existence, so say July and August of 2016, though we'll also include the tail end of June, which was eight episodes total, the number of times that you downloaded the show, the number of times was 551. Now that number really took me by surprise. Sure, it was eight episodes, so a lot of shows were available for download, but to me, half a thousand downloads in the first couple of months of a show's life? Well, I was pretty excited and thankful for that. So I kept creating the content and kept reaching out to guests and kept sharing the occasional emails. In fact, early on, I stated something to listeners that I still stand by to this day. If you write me an email, you will absolutely 100% guaranteed get a response back from me. No matter the content of your email, you could tell me that the show sucked and that I should strongly reconsider another venue of creativity. And I'd still, I, I'd still make a point of writing back to you. If you're going to take the time to reach out to me, share your thoughts on the show, or offer some advice for other listeners, or ask me a question about about documentary, well, you'd better believe that I'm going to give you the courtesy of a reply. And like I said, that's something that I continue to this day, and I, and I plan on continuing that. In fact, a number of you out there, I've been having correspondence with for over nearly a year now, which is pretty awesome. I've, I've struck up friendships with some of my listeners even. Just recently, I've begun corresponding with some filmmakers from Italy, from the UK, from Israel, And that's another thing. I'm making friends with filmmakers from all over the world. I mean, how inspiring and how exciting is that? And we'll get to that in another minute. But as the show was continuing to progress, as the Doc Lifer email started coming in fairly regularly, I, I just became more and more excited about the show and its potential to reach out to more and more people, and even bigger than that, to start fostering this this community of Doc Lifers, right, who are all willing and excited about learning from one another, being motivated and inspired by one another, and discovering the best ways in which to. To hone their documentary practices, as well as the, the best ways in which to live their own documentary lives. And the numbers, they started to grow. September and October brought in another 1,649 downloads. You know, that, 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 that was over three times the downloads from the very first nearly three months. We finished the year strong with 827 downloads in the month of December alone. The start of 2017, it continued the growing trend as 1342, 1,342 more downloads took place in January. In March, we reached 2,000 downloads in a month. And just two weeks ago, for the first time ever, the documentary life eclipsed the 1,000 downloads in just one week's time. At the time of recording this segment for the show, we have thousand downloads. And by the time that this show airs, TDL will be around the 17,000 downloads mark. That's not bad for a show that, that basically started out a year ago in a corner of one of the kids' rooms with just me, my imagination, and a cheap mic and mixer. Now. I mentioned uh, doing the first couple episodes in, in a corner of the kids' rooms. If you look behind me now uh, on YouTube, um, you can get some clips from the show, right? If you, and, and, and and one of this clip shows you'll see behind me, um, basically, we're staying in, in an Airbnb. Of course, we're in the UK, UK right now. My wife's from the UK. And so the family and I are, are here at least this summer. And so we're staying in this Airbnb. And, and that's where I'm recording the podcast from today and have been the last, the last couple of few. Now, again, I'd like to stress that these are not like huge, whopping numbers or anything. The most quote unquote successful weekly podcasts will see upwards of 100,000 downloads per week. So we're a ways from that. But numbers are numbers. And by the way, any rudimentary research into podcast download numbers will tell you that they can be numbers can be misleading. But that's not the point of what I'm getting at here. Anyhow, no, my point is that numbers are just numbers and they're not the individuals behind those numbers, They're not the stories, experiences, films behind each and every individual who clicks on that download button, hoping to get inspired and informed by this show that we call The Documentary Life. Which gets me back to my original point in all of this, which is none of this happens without you. None of it. And maybe more importantly, none of this happens quite in the way that it happens without those emails that I was talking about. The show doesn't take the shape that it takes now without your correspondence and your feedback. It is, after all, through you and your valuable insight, your necessary feedback, that I can best tailor the show to you. I've mentioned this many times over the past year the you know the importance of your engagement encouraging you to tell me what topics you'd like to know more about what what guests you'd like to hear from but I'd like to take a moment and reiterate this a bit more I, I'd like to actually I'd like to make a direct request that from now on if you like something about the show or if you don't like something if there's a dream guest who you might like to hear from why not you know, think big, say Werner Herzog, my dream guest incidentally, or Alex Gibney. If there's a topic that you you feel would be helpful to you and others, maybe you'd like to hear more about, you know, the world of digital distribution or how to write a solid grant, right? The world of grant writing is a big deal for us doc filmmakers. Whatever it is, if you think about it, please take two minutes and let me hear about it. Seriously, you can literally just write me two sentences telling me the name of someone or a topic subject. That's it, that's all I need. Because that, that in itself, that'll be very, very helpful in telling me who you are and what you'd like to hear on TDL. The email that you can use, that you can write me at, it's chris at barangfilms.com. That's chris at A-R-A-N-G-films.com. And you know what? If you write me, I'll even throw in a free download of my first documentary, Journey to Kathmandu. How about that? Of course, it's also available by going to the website, thedocumentarylife.com, whatever. I just need to hear from you. I know you're out there. The numbers tell me this, right? And especially now that we're moving to a weekly format, it's even more vital that I hear what's going to work best for you. Again, you truly decide what and who will be on the show. So I'm going to tailor TDL for your needs. I really always have, or I've always tried as best as I could. So I promise I will continue to do that. But I cannot do that without your feedback. So again, please email me at chris at barongfilms.com can't wait to hear from you, wherever in the world you might be writing me from. Which brings me onto something I briefly mentioned earlier. One of the reasons that I love documentary filmmaking so much is that it often takes me to people and parts of the world I might not normally go to. If you're a frequent listener of the show, then you already know how much travel and culture it's it's a big part of mine and my family's life. The world and its people it serves as a continuous source of inspiration and education to me and often informs much of my work. So another reason that I love doing this show, it's because it allows me to meet other like-minded individuals with similar passions who are from all over the globe. To illustrate this point, I'd like to share with you where other doc lifers like yourself. Where in the world, if you will, they're tuning into the show from. So I'm going to give you the top 10 countries where TDL is most listened to. And by the way, as I do this, I'm looking at a really cool map representation of all the countries. And thank you, Blueberry Podcast for that. I'm looking at an an awesome, cool map representation of all the countries that, 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 that that have downloaded the show. And in fact, I'll take a screenshot of it right now. There. I'm going to take a screenshot of it right now and place it up on the show notes for this episode. Again, the show notes for all episodes can be found by going to the website, which is thedocumentarylife.com. So the top 10 countries are in order from most downloaded to least, including maybe my not so scientific reasons why a particular country is on the list. And yes, some of that will be humorous. At least I hope it will. Uh, not surprisingly, number one on the list, the most, the, the country that most, most downloads the documentary life over the past year. Is where i'm from originally where barong films is located the united states so number one is the, is the united states number two is 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 the neighbor up north of the u.s canada because you know canada's good taste in film and and hockey so number three the uk the united kingdom uh, where where steph my wife is from and where i currently am again here in this uh, airbnb out in the middle of the beautiful english countryside in uh, uh, the outskirts of ipswich if anybody knows where that is in suffolk county Number four, number four takes us east to Japan. And I just assume that's because, I don't know, Japan makes some great cameras. Um, Number five, uh, Australia. Yes, Australia, a large documentary community in in Australia. Number six, Sweden. It's Sweden, you know, I mean, Sweden's cool and creative, duh. Number (laughs) five, number seven, Siete, Espana. They're beautiful and creative people there. I'm sure, I've done work in Barcelona and Barcelona is an amazing town. Number eight, uh, India. And 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 I don't know the sheer population by numbers uh, that they're going to show up in the top ten. Obviously, they have a massive film culture. Uh, Bollywood is bigger than Hollywood, and and they of course have a thriving documentary community as well. And followed uh, right behind India in terms of numbers is China. Also, I don't know sheer population, film culture. By the way, I, I've worked in China uh, on a few jobs. I've mentioned that before, and and I love working with China, and I love working in China, and uh, in 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 particular Chinese crews. And uh, rounding out the top ten is uh, New Zealand, which is pretty great because New Zealand is, you know, creative and beautiful, and and there's no way they're going to let the Australians be on the list and 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 them not. <laughs> now, now, what does this all mean? Honestly, I'm not sure yet. Marketing analysis—it's—it's it's not exactly my strong suit, at least not right now it's not. And I'm sure there's some really important and valuable information for me to, to glean from this, you know, that I can delve into in the future. But for now, I just wanted to give you some idea of who out there in the world is listening. And, And for now, I think it's really cool to think that we truly, you know, we truly are a global community. We doc lifers. So I'm really proud and excited to share that with you guys. And before we move on, I'll share some other, maybe more surprising countries. And by the way, 107, 107 countries in all are tuning into TDL or have tuned into the documentary life. So that's just to give you an idea of how wide and vast this passion, this passion of ours for documentary filmmaking, how wide it runs. So again, there are actually 107 total countries that have have listened or currently listened to the documentary life. To name a few more, Colombia, Netherlands, France, Germany, Costa Rica. Hi, Sophia. Uh, Norway, Denmark, Philippines, Brazil, Italy. Hi, Hossip, To name some more, or how about these: Bangladesh, Morocco, Iran, Albania, Sri Lanka, Chile, Zimbabwe, Ghana, Jordan, Mauritius, Tanzania. The list goes on. <laughs> this is this is amazing, right? And honestly, I'm absolutely honored that people are simply listening to this show. And then that there are other documentary filmmakers like me and, and, and like you in places like Ghana, Albania and Zimbabwe, for God's sakes. Hello. I want someone from Zimbabwe or Ghana to email me and tell me about their doc life. That would be amazing, right? If So if you're from Albania or Peru or the Lao People's Democratic Republic, yes, the Lao People's Democratic Republic are one of the 107 countries that are apparently listening to this podcast. Well, thank you very much. But don't let it stop there. Don't, don't let it stop there. There's so much more to be done here, right? I want you to email me right now at chris@barongfilms.com. Email me and introduce yourself. Tell me who you are. Tell me why and how documentary is a part of your life. Tell me what stories you are filming in Slovakia, Kenya, or the Lao People's Democratic Republic. Say that three times fast. Tell me the stories that you are telling. Tell me why you listen to this show. And tell me how I can better serve you, okay? Okay, are you hearing me now? Can you please help me help you? I really, really hope so. So one last time, my email address is chris at barongfilms.com, chris at b-a-r-a-n-g films.com. Of course, you can always go to the documentarylife.com website and drop me a line there as well. So getting back to how I opened up the show, The Documentary Life, up until today, it it was a bi-weekly program, right, that consisted of one show about a given topic entirely hosted by myself. Followed by a show that consisted of a shared conversation between myself and another Doc Industry guest. But as I've already hinted at, that's about to change. From now on, the Documentary Life will run weekly and will basically consist of three segments. The first segment will be the Doc Lifer question of the week. This is a segment specifically dedicated to you, right? To answering one of your email questions per week. So again, start emailing me those and get yourself on the show. The other two segments will be what you are getting bi-weekly a segment where I talk about a documentary life related topic followed by a slightly longer segment, which will be a shared conversation between myself and a doc industry guest. In essence, the two monthly shows condensed into what is now a weekly show. There you have it, my fellow doc lifer, the start of a new phase in this little old podcast that seems to be bringing a global documentary community together under one metaphorical roof and now doing that on a weekly basis. As always, I cannot thank you enough for for tuning in, for downloading The Documentary Life. Without you, this show doesn't exist. I'm excited to be bringing this show to you now on a weekly basis. And don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode by going to thedocumentarylife.com. There you'll find additional resources, information, and inspiration to go along with this podcast. I'll also put up the YouTube clips that I mentioned early on up on the show notes. When we come back, we'll meet today's documentary industry guest. After I premiered my first documentary film, Journey to Kathmandu, a film that took nearly five years to make, I remember feeling elated and exhausted. Is there any other feeling like the first time you show your completed doc film to an audience? I don't think there is. Not long after, I took a well deserved short break away from the city, and it was while I was on a hike, when I had reached a mountaintop and was overlooking the Great Columbia River, that I found myself thinking back on the film and the journey that I'd been on. I thought about all the mistakes I'd made, all the wins that I'd had, how it had felt to finally share my film with an audience, and I thought about the life it would have from here on out. And I began to break down all the components of what had gotten me to where I was at that moment, and all the things I wished I'd done differently. And this is how I began to form what I am sharing with you today, a free course entitled The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist. In the Essential Checklist, I share with you the fundamental aspects of making a documentary film and perhaps most importantly, help you to avoid making some of the mistakes that I made during my first feature film. It is my sincere hope that the Documentary Filmmakers Essential Checklist will help make your doc film's journey the truly exhilarating experience that it can and should be. It's yours simply by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses and enrolling for free. Hello. Hello. Is this Shalise?
1: It is.
0: Chalice. Hi, Chris. Hi. How are you doing?
1: I'm well. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty well. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on The Documentary Life. Excited to have you joining us today. You have a lot to offer our community. And um, yeah, thanks for agreeing to be on the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Shalise, i uh, I think a good way to start this will be to talk a little bit here briefly about your background and from, and from what I have gathered from the, from, from the research that I've done, um, you've worked, you work as a filmmaker, you teach video storytelling at uh, UC Berkeley graduate school of journalism and the New York press association.
1: Yes. And, and, and recently I've moved to LA and, and have had the pleasure of also teaching at the UCLA extension, which is a really lovely, um, school and opportunity to connect with Students in really different, coming from different backgrounds.
0: Fantastic, and I love the fact that we have not only a, a, a doc filmmaker on the show, but an educator, and so that that's that's absolutely wonderful. Your your, your short doc, uh, old people driving, it premiered at Mill Valley and it aired on PBS Newshour. Uh, 2015 Film Independent Documentary Lab Fellow, you were, as well as a 2012 um, Working Films Fellow. Your current film, uh, Real Boy, has received numerous festival awards and garnered um, uh, numerous grants as well, of course. But, but what I love about all this, and this is reading directly from your, your bio, your favorite job. <laughs> your favorite job was as a founding staff member of StoryCorps. And, yeah. and I have to say, and I'm, I'm sure there are many of my listeners out there as well, um, avid fans of StoryCorps and what StoryCorps does. Tell us a little bit about what you did there, um, how StoryCorps came to be. And then for those who don't know what StoryCorps is, maybe you can let us in on that a little bit.
1: Sure. Um, StoryCorps is a phenomenal project that has grown tremendously um, over the last decade, uh, started by Dave Isay, who was a... Um, Brilliant, who is a brilliant radio producer and um, has had this idea that we needed to be having conversations, and that, that as radio producers, often people would go out and um, there was a, you know, gather people's stories and and decide whose stories were worth telling. And that, in fact, all of our stories are worth telling. <laughs> right. And so um, he, he founded this this organization called StoryCorps, which started very small, but had a really brilliant idea at the core of it, which was to create these recording booths where yeah. anyone who wanted to, for a very nominal fee, just you know enough money to make sure you keep your appointment, could come yeah. to the booth and bring someone they love, someone they are interested in, someone whose story they want to know more about, whether that's a family member, a favorite teacher, a neighbor, um, bring them into the booth and interview them, um, or have a conversation with them, really, but interview them, find out more about their story. And then at the end of the interview, the participants get to leave with a copy of that interview, and the other copy is archived at the Library of Congress at the American Folklife Center. Mm. So it becomes an archive of stories um, of people from all over the country, all over the world for that matter. And the initial booths were, um, the initial booth was at Grand Central Station in New York City. Uh, The second one was at the site of the World Trade Center site. Um, And now they are all over the place and they have collected, I don't know what the number is at this point, but You know, many, 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 many tens of thousands of, of stories. My my job there. Uh, I was one of the first crew of facilitators, and so the yeah. project was new. We were still learning a lot about how it would work, um, and I had the tremendous privilege of listening to people share stories with each other,
2: hmm.
1: and the number of times. People people would come into the booth and someone would start asking questions and they would immediately say, you know, no one's ever asked me to talk about this before. Um, it was incredibly (laughs) emotional. It was really profound. And sometimes it was mundane. Um, you know, the stories varied widely, but what has, has manifested this for the Dave's intention is really to, um, offer people the opportunity to listen to one another.
0: Um, And, and Shalise, I'm curious, uh, early on the people that were coming in and taking advantage of, of telling these stories, did you find that the people were conducting the interviews? Did you find that they had some interview, some prior interview experience? Like, did you have doc filmmakers? Did you have people that worked in broadcasting other storytellers, or did you find that it was the other way around? It was people who weren't necessarily, um, that, uh, experienced with, with conducting interviews.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. One of our jobs as facilitators was actually to support the interviewer in a very brief uh, crash course in (laughs) in interviewing. So we had at that time, and I and and you know I haven't worked there in a very long time, so I don't know how they do it now. But at that time, we had um, several lists of suggested questions for Mm -hmm, different kinds mm of conversations, um, and we would give them a five minute lesson in interviewing skills, yeah. um, because most often people who came to the booth were not, did not have any kind of formal training in interviewing. Um, and as the documentary filmmakers out there and journalists yeah. know, it's a, it's a skill, absolutely a skill. Um, but yes, we did offer them some basic guidelines and best practices for interviewing.
0: And I would love to hear, if you can remember some of that, I would love to hear some of what that five minute sort of spiel was on how to conduct an interview. What are you telling somebody, you know, an amateur in in five minutes, give us some idea what you're telling them and and how to instruct them to do this.
1: Sure. You're testing my memory. (laughs) um, (laughs) So I have to say, I don't recall exactly what our... Um, what our five minutes spiel was, and that's okay. What would,
0: what would you tell somebody now? I guess.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I think so much about interviewing is not about coming up with your next question, but Mm -hmm. it's about deep, deep listening Mm -hmm. and learning to stay present with someone when they're speaking to you and stay present with what they're saying and what their body language is saying. Um, maintain eye contact and you know don't worry about what your next question is if you, if you can learn how to write a question down while you're maintaining eye contact with someone so that you don't forget it later that's great right. but i think so often beginning interviewers are so ready to get on to their next question they might have a list <laughs> they might have it written down that they just run through it um without making space for an interview to to move in a more organic direction
2: breathe. right
1: um, I think silence, not being afraid of silence. Hmm. Um, Certainly in, you know, in in most kinds of of filmmaking, if the the interviewer is not themselves a character in the film, we really encourage folks to stay quiet Hmm. so that our own voices, even if they are encouraging, right, saying, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, oh, yes, oh, that's funny. You know, the interjections (laughs) that we would do in regular conversation, uh, can make the process of editing, whether it be radio oh, or, yes. or video quite challenging if yeah. you have allowed those, um, you know, if, if you haven't stayed quiet,
2: Indeed, <laughs> but also Indeed.
1: allowing quiet to, you know, silence in between questions because yeah. sometimes people aren't finished. And if you jump on their answer, you may cut off a line of thought that can lead to something you never imagined. So, I mean, there's so many other skills, but I think basics are really those.
0: I think that last point is something that I had to learn as a documentary filmmaker a while back. And that was, I found that I was so eager to, I don't want to say agree with the person that I was interviewing, mm. but I wanted them to know, right? I wanted them to know and have an understanding that I understood what they were talking about and that I was following their train of thought at all, at all times. And you know, it doesn't take long to figure out once you, like you said, you get into the editing room and you realize it can be a bit of a bear trying to remove the ums and ahs and, and then the yes. Mm-hmm. And, and then you also realize that, you know, like you said, there isn't, you're not allowing for breathing room. You're not around allowing for the spaces. And um, that was definitely something that I had to, uh, you know, learn early on myself. Mm-hmm.
1: My Some of the folks that I've worked with in long-term documentaries tease me sometimes because I have I, – I similarly like to make sure that people know I'm really engaged and listening <laughs> – and when you do it silently, there's something a little bit funny about it, yes, right? Yes, that's like this, right. This <laughs> nodding, this smiling that right, happens. Right. When I first and and um,
0: why are you staring usually- at me like that? Why are you not saying anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are you doing with your eyes? <laughs>
3: um. It's Friday, July 27th, and I'm a little over two months on testosterone. Two months and six days. And my name is Ben, because I changed it. This is how I'm going to explain it. I am literally a boy with the wrong body parts. I just think, you know,
2: that there is the argument of you're not.
3: What defines what is a boy? Is it your brain or is it your body? I had this vision when I named my child Rachel of just this Rapunzel-y vision. I just thought the name Rachel was just the most beautiful name ever. Still do. He's going down a path that is going to be a huge struggle. All I really want is to, like, I just want to be loved by my family. And I think that for my family, it's not as simple as that. I mean, it's complicated for them. The mentorship I have with Joe is unreal. We struggle with addiction. We struggle with so many of the same things. Yeah. And that gives me hope that I will come out at least half the man he is. It's not what I would have wanted my child to want. But the ultimate goal for any parent is that their kid is happy.
0: And Shalise, that feels like a perfect segue into talking about Real Boy. Maybe what would be helpful, Shalise, give us um, a short sort of a synopsis of what Real Boy is about. Um, and then I'd really love to hear what drew you to this particular story.
1: Sure. Um, so Real Boy is the story of a young transgender man, a teenager who um, is grappling with his family, his mother... Um, is really struggling to understand and accept his transition. And while his mother works through her feelings about this, he's taken under the wing of, of his chosen family, of his community of other trans men, a mentor and a best friend who helps support him into young adulthood until his family of origin is ready to show up for him. Hmm. So it's not only his Story, um, a coming-of-age story of of sorts, but it's also very much um, his mother's story and and chronicles her journey to acceptance um, of her child. And so the film is about given and chosen family. It's about the ways that our search for identity are not only personal, but impact people we love, the people who love us. I initially met the sort of central protagonist in the film, Bennett Wallace, through his mentor, Joe, who is a um, who's been a a touring musician for over a decade. And I was a big fan of Joe Stevens music and his band, Coyote Grace.
2: And so I was filming
1: a house concert um, that he was performing at. And he had just met Bennett and Bennett was there opening the show. Um, And I loved Bennett's music and his lyrics And I also was really drawn to their friendship um, because I'm interested in the way that we in the LGBTQ community have a long history of forming chosen families, Mm. whether we have supportive families or not. And, um, And there was something in that, in the mirroring in their relationship, in the sort of way that each saw in the other some, reflection of themselves um, and how much at that moment Bennett really needed someone to show up for him because he was having so much trouble with his family. So initially it was going to be a film about the two of them and their friendship. And it grew to include Bennett's mom. Right. Um, so I met her and saw sort of what she was going through.
0: Right. And, and, and I found in, in watching this film, I mean, you can see that as, as a, as a, as a filmmaker, I can see where you had some choices to make about which direction to go with. And I can mm. see in terms of um which relationship do I maybe focus on, or do I focus on both relationships? I think and and, and, and the relationships between Bennett and Joe, and Bennett and his mother are both extraordinary. And and I, I do want to take a moment to recognize um, you know, what what was what I found refreshing um in the film is obviously the vulnerability of, of of Ben, but not only Ben, but I found of his mother, you know, I mean, mm. to, to me, she's, she's not what, what you might sort of stereotypically guess would be, which is to say a particularly maybe stodgy person, maybe with a closed off mind. Right. The thing that's beautiful mm-hmm. about her is, is, is she's clearly a, a fairly progressive parent and, mm. and you can see her struggles and she's trying to be open and, and, and she's trying to understand what's, what's happening, you know, around her and, and, and she's making her opinion felt right. But, but you never get uh-huh. the feeling she's, she isn't trying to be vulnerable in the situation. And if anything, I, I think it's, there's even foreshadowing there, right. Of what's to come in terms of, of her, her of her mom's own or of his mom's own transformation. And, and, uh-huh. and, and it's such a. I feel without that relationship, obviously it's a different film, but this was what's what extraordinary to me about the film.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Bennett's mom, Susie is, is most definitely the sort of, um, I think in some ways it's unexpected. The film is called real boy. Bennett's it's called real boy because it's a, a, a sort of, um, term he's chosen for himself. It's tattooed on his arm. It's the name of his first album. Right, right. So the film is sort of named after him. Um, and I think many people think, oh, this is going to be a film about a person's transition. Yes. Um, when in fact, it's really not. Even though Bennett's, we follow all of these relationships during the period of his transition. Right. Um, because it's there's a lot of heightened emotions going on for everybody, but it's, it's not about his transition. He already knows who he is. When we meet him, he's really clear about who he is in terms of his gender, but he's also an adolescent at that point. And we get to mm. watch him grow into young adulthood. Um, but the person who makes the greatest transformation is absolutely Susie. She's the one who's, whose emotional journey we're Yeah. We're charting, right? Yeah. And and also Bennett's relationship with his mentor because Joe, Joe he starts right. out and Joe is, you know, Bennett looks up to Joe and mm-hmm. Joe is so amazing and can't do anything wrong and is perfect and he wants to grow up and be just like Joe and he's, <laughs> you know, there's this adulation um, in that relationship. Um, and as time goes by, they, you know, and Bennett grows up, they become more like peers, yeah. but also we see that Joe is fallible and that's that Joe right. has his own demons and that Joe also needs not, you know, is not only in the position of mentor, but needs himself needs support. And so that relationship shifts. Um, and I think that that's what's, what is interesting to me. That's what, what I like to make films about are mm. messy, complicated relationships because we all have them. Um, and so, whether someone has a lived experience of of being trans or having a trans kid, or they're part of the, the broader LGBTQ community or not, it's likely that most people have had a complicated relationship with a family member yeah. or with a f- best friend or, you know, with a with a with someone close to them in their lives.
0: And and this can sort of lead into Um, sort of the next area that I'd like to talk to you about, which is community outreach that you're having with this film. Um, It's played an extraordinary number of festivals, schools, libraries, community centers. Um, I mentioned festivals already over 70 film festivals. Um, What's the dialogue that you're hoping to, to create with this film and did you always have this hope or intention to get it out into communities in the way that you already have?
1: Um, absolutely. I mean, when we started production on the film, I was already starting a process of thinking about audience engagement. Um, it came a little bit more easily because it's also because it's inside my own community, yes. I already had relationships with people at organizations. Right. Um, and and just, you know, my social network. But I knew that I wanted to not just have the film play in sort of venues where filmgoers, right, would go to see it as, as entertainment. Yes. But that it would be an opportunity for conversation. And when we started yeah. the film in 2012, we were not yet having a national, and for that matter, international conversation about gender identity right? Um, in the same way that we are now. It was certainly happening in pockets, but not at the scale um, that we are today. And so I didn't really anticipate where we would be with that. Um, it's been interesting to also, one of my hopes Along the way, you know, every filmmaker has to think about who their audience is. Yes. It's really important to say, who am I making this film for?
0: Um, and you're doing this well before and, you started filming, and I think that's yeah. important to, to reiterate to my audience.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I, and and it can be really tricky if, if, if you're just making because it's interesting to you, but you don't know who your audience is. There's yeah. so many choices <laughs> that get made along the way that are really about that. And with this film in particular, I thought about it a lot, but I... I wanted very much to reach both the sort of queer and trans community, or at least the community that I was part of and wanted, you know, it was very important to me that the film spoke to them and didn't feel like a a film that didn't resonate. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to resonate, um, within inside of community, but I also wanted it to be accessible to a broader audience that was open-minded and interested in learning more about yes. gender identity and trans issues more broadly, but was outside of that community. And yes. so it was a very careful dance in that it's way. Interesting. Um, and I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it. Yeah. And I think the thing that I have the most Proud of the most grateful for, is that in the over you know hundred and we have had over 150 screenings in 20 countries. <laughs> We've now had a broadcast on Independent Lens on PBS, which is yes. reaching, I you know I don't even know what the numbers Untold are. total numbers, point, but right? A very large audience. Yes, yes. But and that audience is not necessarily specifically trans people, queer people, their families. You know, it's it's folks who are turning on their televisions, you know, cause they're, they like documentaries. Um, and the thing I'm most grateful for are the people who have come to speak with us after screenings who are, who are trans, who are the parents of trans kids who say that felt so true mm. to my experience. Mm. Like even if the particulars of my experience aren't the same, mm. I, I, I related so deeply. Um, it felt real. It felt like a a, a story that took my experience and, um, and put it on screen and it felt true. And on the other side, I've had so many people who aren't inside that community say, I really you know, I related to the mom or I related to like <laughs> ah, <Bennett's>,
0: right <laughs>
1: best friend. Right, not just like, oh, I learned so much about those people. But That's right. but that, you know, I know I, I know what it feels like to raise a teenager, or I yeah. know what it feels like to, you know, be a teenager and want things to happen faster and want people to understand mm-hmm. you and that frustration.
0: <laughs> totally there seems to be a segment of the audience that was not mentioned. And that perhaps would be a segment of the population that maybe don't at all agree with um, gay rights Mm. or gay marriage or the transgender community. As a filmmaker as particular, obviously, this film, were you worried at all about that audience? Did you want to open their hearts and minds? Was that a concern of yours? Or did you just think, you know what? They're, they've are they already sold themselves down the river in this direction. Forget about these people. We don't need to try to reach them. Or, Or did you yeah. really think about, I would love to be able to open them up a little bit, right?
1: Yeah. And I think yeah. something that I've learned through not only this film, but I think through witnessing the... Distribution and audience engagement paths of many films. Yeah, um, is that that is a very difficult thing to do
0: right. because right. unless you
1: unless your film is part of a some sort of mandatory, <laughs> you know, <laughs> someone's going through a training and they have to watch it or they're. It, it, you know, unless they're watching it against yeah. someone else who's saying you must watch this film, and you don't have a choice. Right. And even still, you can't no. make someone, uh, you can't force anyone to do anything that they no. don't want to do. No, no, um, no. And so, what I've learned, and we we have taken this film to places in West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania, and you know, throughout <laughs> the Midwest and the South, places that are very yeah. politically conservative. Yes. Um, and I thought, well, this will be really interesting. We'll see who comes and what kind oh, of conversation yeah. Totally. And what I discovered when I got there was the people who show up are people who have a reason to be there.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right. You know,
1: they want to know more or they are part of the community and they want to see something that reflects their experience, yeah. but they're choosing to be there. And so our audiences, even in very red parts of red states,
2: mm.
1: were, you know, a small community of trans and gender non-conforming, non-binary young people, their parents, their allies, their teachers, um, to some extent, you know, people who wanted to be better allies, who were uh, progressive folks in these, in these towns, mm. uh, they were not people who thought this was an abomination because right. those people, they're either just not going to come see it or they're going to watch it and see yeah. what they want to see
2: yeah, in right. the
1: film um, they're going to look at it and say, this is terrible. Um, so I don't think I ever really had a genuine ambition to swing people from one set of beliefs to the other. I mean, I, you know, I have my own beliefs and if someone showed me Mm. a film Mm. (laughs) that, that was very far from my own worldview, I'm not sure I would, you know, how open I would be to that. However, we, we very much had a hope of reaching people who were just outside the choir. Yes. Right. The folks who like the way I thought about them was like, maybe they're not, um, maybe they themselves don't have, you know, they don't have a trans kid, but maybe they, their, their child goes to school with a kid who's transitioning and they don't really know what to think about it. Mm. They're not totally opposed, but they kind of wish they knew more and they want to be able to have a conversation with their kid about it. Yes. And they're curious and a little, maybe they feel a little funny about it. In some ways, people who feel very much like Bennett's mom, Susie does at the beginning of the film.
0: Yeah, that's right. Right. Well, and I feel like you could have some, some conversations and you probably already have with, with other fellow doc filmmakers who are handling materials such as you have. And, and I have one in particular, um, that I, that I know of that's a listener of the, of the program. Uh, so I would say to you, Shalise, as a fellow doc filmmaker who has, who has now done a film about a topic that may be controversial for some, um, and, and Mm. now have been touring with this film, if you will, for a while. Um, I'd say, what do you recommend for another filmmaker who may be also doing a doc dealing with sensitive or controversial issues, um, maybe in a challenging environment, say that's not even in the U S and I say this Mm -hmm. to give you some backdrop of, um, I've got a young a uh, doc filmmaker and she's based down in Costa Rica. Sophia, if you're listening to this, this is for you. Um <laughs> Sophia is working on a doc about one of the first gay marriages, a lesbian couple in Costa Rica. And, and mm-hmm. in a place certainly where gay marriage is is not, is not as not recognized by either church or state. Um what would you what would you say to someone like Sophia about perseverance or maybe the importance of what she's doing?
1: Um Well, I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning of Mm. our conversation, which Mm. is about community. Um, And I think it is so important when you're making a film, any film really, but especially a film that may be challenging to make in some ways that may be challenging subject matter is to reach out not only to fellow filmmakers um, who are going to have... different kinds of advice and support um, to build that community, but also really to build your community of folks inside the community of the story you're telling, right? Not just the people who are in the film, but really um, as much as possible to, to build relationships with, with those people because they know their world better, even though you are sort of, learning deeply about something that's outside of your experience, they will always have more to to share with you. And so checking in with people, asking them to, um, you know, building building trust, building relationships, and then if they are comfortable, asking them to review footage with you, Mm. Um, having advisors, because there are always folks who can help guide the way who've been along these paths um, both as storytellers or not and we we can't do this alone we shouldn't do this alone
2: Mm.
1: and it it's a lot easier to weather the you know the abuse that might come your way from people who don't agree with what you're doing if you are in solidarity with a larger community
0: I mentioned a listener, Sophia, a filmmaker down in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would I be able to give her your email if she had any mm-hmm. sort of questions for you? Cause I think that would be yeah, a lovely connection for her to make.
1: Of course. Yeah. I'd be happy to.
0: Okay. That's, that's lovely. Thank you, Shalisa. I will, I will, sure. I will put uh, I, I will throw that out there to Sophia and, and she may con- contact you.
1: Great. Well, I would love to talk to her.
0: As we wrap this up, this conversation up, Shalisa, um, One of the things that uh, I asked two things to guests towards the ends of conversations. And the first thing that I'd like to ask you as, as we sort of finish out this, this fantastic conversation is how is it, Shalise, that you would describe you live your documentary life?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it, it shifts and changes over time, Mm. but I, um, I teach. I teach both, you know, in sort of school, college and grad school settings, but also I teach workshops Yes. Um, for mid-career journalists and people in um, marketing and communications or people who are coming from, say, reality television and want to make documentaries. Yeah. Um, I also produce for other people. So yes. when I'm not making my own films or sometimes simultaneously, I'm also working for other filmmakers using my skills and, and talents to, to help support their work, right. um, which which pays some of the bills. Yes. <laughs> um, and I continue to distribute previous films, self-distribute previous films that I've made. Um, and I also have found that for me, one of the things that I can do to make a sustainable life is keep, I've had the tremendous opportunity and privilege to keep my expenses relatively low. Uh Um, so for a number of years, it was a matter of having, you know, really affordable housing and, um, not going on vacations or,
2: um,
1: eating out a lot. And so if, you know, I have to make less to... Yeah. Afford a more, a less expensive life, I guess. Uh, that can be difficult living in the cities that I have lived in. I was in <laughs> Oakland 12 years and recently moved to Los Angeles in part yeah. because Oakland got too expensive.
0: Well, isn't, that, isn't that crazy? Um, you, you, you left Oakland for LA because LA was cheaper. It's, it's just it's insanity. True.
1: <laughs> it's true. And certainly there are many less expensive places, but yeah. this is where my family is and yeah. my community is. Yeah. Um, you know, shooting, producing, teaching. And then when I have the opportunity to focus on my own film, then I can do that um, usually through, you know, getting the film funded enough to be able to pay myself a little bit yes. along the way.
0: Yes. And I think that is something that people tend to um tend to forget is and, and, I, and I am constantly working on this myself and reminding others that make sure that when you, you know, you put together your budgets for grant proposals and any sort of budget that you're doing for your projects make sure to include your time <laughs> oh, <laughs> because you, you've got to pay yourself. You know, this, right. you're, you don't work for free. So come, yeah, right. Yeah. It's important. And
1: typically as a director, even if you pay yourself, you'll never, you know, if you break it down to an hourly wage, it's never going to be. <laughs> it's never going to be minimum <laughs> <it's> wage. <laughs> right. But I do think it's really important. And I think as yeah. someone who's been on many review panels for grants, mm. um, One of the things that reviewers think about and look at at is your budget. And if your budget is saying, oh, I don't really value my own time or I'm not going to pay myself or, you know, I'm not going to pay people on my crew very much. I'm doing this on the, you know, on the super cheap. There are a lot of grants that will see that as a red flag um, because they want to know that you're going to pay the people who are making the film, including yourself, um, and that it's sustainable, yeah. And so it's you know it feels a little bit counterintuitive, but oftentimes, you know, it's the it's the filmmakers who've been able to figure out how to how to pay themselves and their crew properly who yeah. are more competitive. And that of course isn't the only factor, but yeah. um, but it doesn't make you more competitive if you are are doing it on the cheap.
0: Right, right. Actually, that's, that that last bit of advice is is very very valuable to um to the Doc Lifer community. Shalise, uh, tell us how how, and where we can see Real Boy.
1: Sure. So um, Real Boy will be released uh, digitally sometime likely in the fall, um, but we will have specific dates available. If you go to our website, which is realboymovie.com, you can see where the film will be screening. Um we have screenings happening all around the world currently. Um and also if you sign up for updates, we can let you know when the film will be released digitally
2: yes.
1: in your region. Um you can also host your own screening. There there's a an opportunity to do that also on realboymovie.com. Awesome. Um And um, the film is currently available for educational use and will eventually also be available on home DVD.
0: Shalise, again, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I'm excited for the episode to air. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on The Documentary Life.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Take take out anything that's un un uh, inarticulate or rambling. So half of my end of the conversation, not a problem. <laughs> no 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 no. no.
0: <laughs> awesome. Have a great day, and uh, and you, uh, we will be in touch. Thank you very much.
1: Appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.
0: Don't forget, if you're interested in a guide to help you navigate the fundamental aspects of doc filmmaking, the things that every doc filmmaker should know, then get our free doc filmmaking course, The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, by going to the slash courses. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.